long history. How Manila became Spanish. Part 5. Treacherous Work. A Battle in Manila. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Long History. This is the final part of the document called How Manila Became Spanish. But this document is paired with another document which will start soon on Long History and which continues this story and overlaps a little and is called Conquering Manila and that will be another five episodes. As this episode begins however, the Spanish are moored just outside of Manila town in Manila Bay. As the previous episode ended, the master of camp had learned that one nearby group was planning to attack the Spanish in the bay. The king of Manila had promised to support the Spanish. However, the Spanish had already heard that the king and his men in Manila were just biding their time waiting for rain. This rain would stop the Spanish weapons called arquebuses from working. Then, the king and his people would attack and defeat the Spanish. As this episode begins, however, the rains do not come and the men in Manila attack the Spanish anyway. So here we go with how Manila became Spanish, part 5, Treacherous Work, a battle in Manila. Having dismissed the envoy with this message, the master of camp ordered all the men to be on the watch and for all the crews of the prows to sleep on land. That day, the sunset was so blood-red that it presented a wonderful sight. The men said that the sun was blood-stained. All that night, the men, both on land and sea, slept fully armed. The next morning, two or three soldiers were going ashore in a little canoe when, seven or eight paces from land, their small canoe suddenly filled with water and the men went to the bottom. One of the soldiers, Juan Núñez, a native of Talavera, was drowned. At ten o'clock of that same morning, some sails were seen at sea, and the master of camp, thinking them to be the ships of those who were coming to fight with the Spaniards, dispatched a prow to reconnoitre them. As the prow came near them, these vessels were seen to be tapaques, and the master of camp, fearing that the prows might do them harm, called it back by firing a cannon seaward. The Moros, who were waiting for an opportunity for treason, but had not manifested it because it had not rained as they had expected, therefore opened the war, and without any warning, fired three cannon shots one after another. One of them pierced the side of the ship and struck the cast room scattering its ashes among the bystanders. The other two shots were high, passing over the ship halfway aft, and one would have killed many men had the aim been a vara lower. The Moros had begun their treacherous work even before this, for they had seized some of the friendly Indians who had gone there to feast with their friends, had wounded the Indian slave of a soldier, beaten and frightened two or three others, and wounded another soldier with an arrow. When the effrontery of the Moros was seen, and that they could do us some injury with their artillery, it was decided to attack them. Therefore, in the twinkling of an eye, the Spaniards attacked and took the palisade, hurling down the bombardiers with linstock in hand, giving them no chance to fulfil their duties. 
after this first artillery had fallen into their hands, they immediately took the town and set fire to it on account of its being large. The Moros abandoned the burning town, for they were unable to resist the attack of the arquebusiers, or rather, the will of God, who had ordained it so, a self-evident fact, since for every Spaniard there were a hundred Moros. The large ship was firing upon a Moro boat with long-bladed oars, which was far up the river. This vessel was said to have three or four hundred fighting men and rowers on board, with many culverins and large pieces of artillery. The cannonball struck the water, for the vessel was some distance away, surrounded by more than five hundred Moro prows and other large ships full of armed men, bowmen and lancers. All these ships were scattered by the artillery of the large junk. The town was rapidly burning. The master of camp hurriedly took the artillery from the Moros, thirteen pieces, small and large. He took care to protect the vessels of the Chinese, who had been greatly frightened. He ordered the return of the sails and helms which the Moros had taken away from them. And the Chinese, attaching the helms to their ships as quickly as they could, proceeded to cast anchor near the junk, so that the firing should do them no harm. The master of camp, having captured the enemy's artillery, fired upon them with their own pieces, while they were fleeing, thus inflicting upon them severe losses, both on land and water. About one hundred dead were found on land, having been burned to death, or slain by arquebus bullets. More than eighty persons were taken captive, and many others were killed in the prows as they fled up the river. The rain, expected by the Moros, came when the town was quite destroyed by fire. The loss in the town was considerable, for it was large and carried on an extensive trade. In the town lived forty married Chinese and twenty Japanese. Of these, some came to see the master of camp on board the ship, before the breaking out of hostilities, among whom was a Japanese with a Thetan cap from which we thought him to be a Christian. When we asked him if he was one, he answered in the affirmative, saying that his name was Pablo. He adored an image and asked for some beads. But people say he was among the Moro bombardiers. Among the prisoners were the Chinese wives of some of the Chinese who had married and settled in the town. And although it would have been justifiable to make them slaves, because their husbands had fled with the Moros, the master of camp was unwilling to do so, but simply handed them over to the Chinese of the ships. One of the Chinese women wished to come with us, and we have found since that she was insane. Now she is with the governor, who will send her back to her own country. Those who saw Solomon's house before it was burned say that it was very large, and that it contained many valuable things, such as money, copper, iron, porcelain, blankets, wax, cotton, and wooden vats full of brandy. But everything was burned to the ground with the house. Afterward, the iron and copper furnished gain to whomsoever wished to take it, for a great quantity of it, which this house and others contained, was found on the ground after the fire. 
When the prisoners captured were asked why the Moros had broken the treaty of peace and friendship, they answered that the young Solomon was to blame, for he always opposed his uncle, the other chief, that he had a malicious disposition, and that it was he who gave the order to fire, and who even fired with his own hand the first shot which struck the ship. Next to Solomon's house was another which was used as a storeroom. It contained much iron and copper, as well as culverins and cannon which had melted. Some small and large cannon had just been begun. There were the clay and wax moulds, the largest of which was for a cannon seventeen feet long, resembling a culverin. The Indians said that the furniture alone lost in Solomon's house was worth more than five thousand ducats. After the burning of this town, the master of camp waited two days in the river for some message from the Moros, but seeing that no one appeared, and that he had but few men with him to seek them in land, and that the bay and waterway was such that, in order to sail out of it, they needed the northeast wind, which was now blowing, although feebly, and that the southwest gales were coming, so that, as the interpreters affirmed, if the necessary steps were not taken, the probability was that the lordship would not leave the place. And in order not to lose the ship and its artillery, the master of camp decided to leave the bay immediately, after having first asked full information concerning the towns upon its coast. Thus, we set sail in company with only the Chinese and their four vessels. These said that they had no articles of trade in their vessels, except some large earthen jars and porcelain. Many of the soldiers bartered trifles of little value with them in exchange for wax, which the Chinese greatly value and even buy with gold. From what we could see and hear of them, the Chinese are a very humble people. It seems that they observe among themselves a certain form of politeness and cleanliness. They became great friends with us, and gave us letters of security, which consisted of wide cloths that they had with them, upon which were painted the royal coat of arms. They promised to come the next year to this river of Panay, and to establish trade with the Spaniards. All that the Chinese asked was given them, which pleased them much, and they were shown the best possible treatment. Then they left us, and, according to what they said, went to Mindoro. The master of camp cast anchor in the port where we halted before, and there we remained another day, to see whether or not any of the natives would come to us for peace. Seeing that no one came, the master of camp, fearing lest the northeast wind would cease, left the harbour with his vessels, for it would not be possible to do so when the southeast wind should blow. He coasted past the towns which had made peace on the voyage hither, until the town of Balayan was reached. Thence we dispatched the junk to the island of Panay with Captain Juan de Salcedo, who had not yet recovered from his wound in the leg, and five or six sick soldiers. The master of camp remained with the oared prows in order to win over all the towns which were desirous of peace. Thus, leaving them behind pacified and assured of friendship, he returned to the camp, for the governor had sent them by sea an advised prow on the arrival of the fleet from Nueva España. 
Such, then, are the events of this voyage. So in the end, it seems, it was a case of who shot first, and there was a brief battle which actually sparked a fire, which ultimately seems to be the main reason why the Spanish could say they'd won this battle. As this document ends, the master of camp, the head of this expedition, tried to tie up a few loose ends with some of the local towns and villages, and then returns to the Spanish current base on Panay Island. So that's the end of the first document in this pair. The next document on long history will cover some of the same ground, but from a slightly different point of view, and then we'll go ahead and explain what happened in Manila. That will be the next document on long history, which we've called Conquering Manila. Thank you for listening everyone to this episode. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and please do give it a like in whatever way you can before you move on. If you like this particular field, don't forget that there are a couple of other documents on long history covering the early colonization of the Philippines. In the meantime, however, thank you for listening to this episode and this document. This was How Manila Became Spanish, Part 5, Treacherous Work, A Battle in Manila. Goodbye.